This podcast episode is brought to you by Iron Source. They know you're here for good content, so they're not going to waste your time with a long pitch. Here are the three things you need to remember and know about Iron Source. Number one, they're developing the most robust data-driven growth engine for mobile games. Number two, their secret sauce is closing the monetization marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth. And number three, they have an awesome Medium blog and podcast called Level Up. You can find it on Medium by searching for Iron Source Level Up. Thanks. This podcast episode is also brought to you by AppsFlyer. Most of you are familiar with AppsFlyer. It's perhaps the best attribution platform on mobile, a true foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving you all the tools to drive marketing success. But what is attribution platform? Why do we need it? And why is AppsFlyer the best in the business? Brian Murphy, head of games at AppsFlyer. Can you answer these questions? Sure. Uh, right now, marketing budgets are being impacted. Uh, so the need for strong attribution and measurement partners is critical. Marketers should be focusing on what's working best. So mobile measurement and attribution partners who help provide uh, those insights are even more important. Mobile attribution platforms determine which campaigns, partners, and channels delivered each app install, and marketers rely on these insights to measure and optimize their marketing performance for both user acquisition and retargeting campaign. With one trillion in-app events measured each month, AppsFlyer is the most robust technology platform and mobile measurement partner for any game developer to distribute and engage their application to a worldwide consumer base. Our scale and data insights provide customers with unique ability to make informed marketing decisions. In short, AppsFlyer gives you the data and tools to market your games effectively. So there you have it, folks. Go to appsflyer.com and get yourself one of the best attribution platforms out there. Welcome to Twig94. We're here today with myself, Joe Kim, Eric Chris. Adam Telfer is back from vacation. Welcome back, Adam. And we also have a special guest with us, Kenny Liu. Many of you may already know Kenny from the newsletter, GG Digest, but we wanted to announce a bit more on the partnership and integration of GG Digest and the Deconstructor of Fun. So Kenny, can you both talk a little bit about yourself and give us an update on what's, what's going on with that newsletter? Uh, hey, hey guys, um, really excited to be here again on the podcast. Um, yeah, so we started GG Digest. We start, I actually started the newsletter internally at Riot, uh, which I was um, an employee for for about four years, um, most recently working on the project Wild Rift, which is lead mobile for two of those years. Um, prior to that, I worked at Nexon and, and, uh, and Sony Online Entertainment. But this newsletter started as an internal only Riot newsletter because I felt like we weren't respecting our competitors or um, learnings from competitors enough. Um, and then I eventually evolved it to grow to be external because I wanted to um, build my personal brand outside of Riot. Um, recruited Joseph Kim, and uh, who all the listeners uh, know and is well-beloved, and also another um, game designer named Jeff Witt, which is a friend of Joseph's. Um, and uh, GG Digest was a group publication by us for about half a year before Mishka kind of approached us and, uh, or, you know, we, we mutually approached each other and we decided to combine forces. And so going forward, um, we're going to, our offering on the digest side is to basically provide a weekly newsletter digest to our loyal deconstructor fund readers and viewers um, to give them a high level kind of like overview of what are the big things that, you know, they should think they should think about and they should actually pay attention to in the week of the industry in terms of news. And uh, we provide a little bit of insight as well for some of the most important kind of like headlines. Um, so stay tuned each week. We'll be improving our kind of content offering um, uh, as, as the weeks and months go by. All right. Yeah. And there should be, I'll put a link in the show notes. If you have not signed up, feel free to sign up now. And so we'll roll straight into updates and Kenny, you've got an update, right? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about Battle Legion because I thought it was a really interesting um, game that I had played in beta. Um, and it, it was a game that uh, was released by Traplight recently this past month, but it was an open beta for two and a half years, um, if not more. And uh, from what I heard anecdotally from other VCs who had taken a look at the company as a potential investment, uh, the user retention data was supposedly great for a long time but they couldn't figure out monetization. Um, and it, it, launching out of beta last month, it seems like monetization is still likely an issue for them. And I thought the, the, the parallels are really interesting with this game and comparing it to a game, for example, like Supercell's Rush Wars, which was a game that was launched in 
uh, uh, that was soft launch, but actually didn't um, uh, make it past the the benchmark to go into full worldwide launch. Um, there's there's basically I think some pros and cons in terms of you know what uh, Battle Legion offers over Rush Wars and vice versa. Uh, for example, I think um, seeing an so in in Battle Legion you have basically kind of like an auto battle simulation with an offense of uh, an, an army offense that you kind of construct smashing against another army offense that a, an opponent kind of um, gets matched against you. And so seeing, I think, two offenses smash into each other and charge is, I think, a lot more of this really satisfying than seeing just uh, your offense take on a defense, uh, which is what Supercell's Rush Wars was, uh, was structured to be like. Um, the con, though, is that I think uh, Battle Legion has a lot less interesting strategic choices on a on a day to day, if not week to week basis. And um, Jeff Witt, our designer in residence, he did a great deep dive deconstruction post, uh, which we uh, have shared in our newsletter for this week. So please check that out um, uh, for for some more details. All right, cool. And some updates from me. First update, it's being reported by publication Live Mint that India is considered banning PUBG Mobile. So India has already banned a number of apps from Chinese publishers. And similarly, in the US, we're seeing news about TikTok and potential bans and restrictions, things like that. So I think there may be an interesting angle here for specific games and genres in terms of potential opportunities, assuming that there is future government regulatory restrictions in the future, whether it's for India or the US or China. So further, the South China Morning Post has called the for sale of TikTok uh, here in the US robbery and seems to indicate potential for future retaliation. Anyway, I'm not here to provide political commentary on this, but just to say that the market is the market and the environmental change that we may potentially be seeing here could bring new challenges as well as new opportunities. So something that you guys in the industry might want to keep an eye out for. Second update is that Nico Partners, the video games research firm, is reporting that esports generated 519 million in revenue in Asia, which is the number one region for esports, comprising half of global revenue. They also note that COVID has slowed down esports expansion due to inability to host in-person tournaments, but esports streaming viewership increased by 75 to 100% in Asia. Third update, Bloomberg is reporting that Blizzard staff put together an anonymous spreadsheet to compare salaries in an open revolt against compensation practices there. According to Bloomberg, Blizzard employees said they were struggling to make ends meet while watching Activision Blizzard revenue grow year after year. And even further, quote, one employee wrote that they had to skip meals to pay rent and that they used the company's free coffee as an appetite suppressant. So, <laughs> oh, my God. I missed this one. This is a great one. I gotta go. I gotta look at this one again. Yeah, that's yeah, crazy. I, the the other, the, my understanding with Blizzard is that a lot of their compensation was based upon quarterly bonuses, and so their 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 salaries have always been historically low. And so, but if those bonuses have gone away, which I've heard they have, then perhaps this is actually not so far from the truth. But I'm sure it's somewhat exaggerated. But uh, well, that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping it's exaggerated. <laughs> But. Well, I, I, what's funny is that I was at I was at Riot, and we actually there was a um, a spreadsheet that was very similar that was circulated around. Um, I think it was close to around the time the Kotaku article came out, um, but it was really hard to actually distinguish, you know, whether it, people were trolling or not. You know, if somebody writes like software architect five hundred k a year, you know, likely that they may or may not be making that, but also thinking about the fact that a software architect who is making that probably wouldn't write that, you know, <laughs> just because the, the, yeah. So it's just, it's tough because if it's anonymous, you know, you're going to have trolls. Right. Yeah. No, no. I mean, yeah, I don't think things are going so well at Blizzard. So this is probably just more endemic of that. Right. Okay. And final update for me, Sony reported that PlayStation had the biggest Q1 in its history with new records in revenue, profit, and software sales. However, more interesting, 74% of game sales were digital, a new record. And in related news, Capcom also reported that in their Q1, they reached 80% digital. So now, obviously, coronavirus has an impact here, but I think we can clearly see where this trend is going. And especially with the next generation of consoles, this shift to digital is clearly on its on its way. Eric? 
I don't know. That shift's been going on for quite a while. This is like the nail in the coffin. Of yeah, but I mean, stuff. from fifth. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's going to be a huge step up, is what I'm saying. Yeah, GameStop's dead. Um, all right. So, uh, if everyone has not heard it, they should definitely hear Tim Sweeney interview with Mr. Joseph Kim. It's pretty great interview. And Sweeney's out there again, demonizing. Apple and Google and all the platforms. Uh, but after I listened to J the, the interview with Sweeney, I, I thought I should come out here and clarify a few things because it seems that Tim and I probably agree on more than we disagree, I guess is what I've, I've learned from actually look, listening to him a little bit more. Uh, so here's kind of where we agree. We agree that 30% is too much. 30% is obscene and it is pretty fundamentally clear that the service that they provide currently is not worth 30%. And I think the back of the envelope math says probably 12 to 15 cents, 15% makes a little bit more sense, you know, with transaction costs, hosting costs, and, and putting in some profits there, 12 to 15% probably makes the most sense. All right, so we agree on that. Um, we also agree that Apple and Google are using their market share to take advantage of their competitors and partners, right? Uh, that, I agree, <laughs> totally, <laughs> right? The uh, latest example is this IDFA thing with Apple, right? Basically, Apple is ripping the backbone of performance marketing pretty willy-nilly, although they've been told, telling that this is coming down the line, but giving three months for them to adjust is and without any type of alternative. Alternative is total douchebaggery, all right? So on a side note, by the way, I was thinking about this for the last couple of weeks. It's like, we've been here before, right? It's, this is not the first time that some platform is take, takes advantage of the publishers, right? And, and Facebook was the worst. This, they actually were more egregious in some ways with their Facebook gaming platform. You know, they basically built their business. They, the virality of Facebook in its early years was based around gaming, you know, fundamentally. Zynga, Playdom, Playfish had huge businesses on Facebook gaming. And almost overnight, they just fucking annihilated it, right? They pushed this 30% a fee down on the on the publishers basically squeezing all the profits uh and all the margin um and then they then the, the death blow is they removed the vi virality mechanisms um with the exception of the favorite nation policy with zynga which is a whole other story but that was even more diabolical because then only zynga could really compete on the platform so really only zynga survived this ragnarok as you use many times but ultimately, the business went from $10 billion down to $1 billion. And, and the reason is, fundamentally, Facebook give a shit about gaming, right? Fundamentally. Let's, Google, historically, fucking does not like gaming. Like, the, part, the founders of Google just despise gaming, right? And it's all reflected in how they do their businesses, right? And this is, like, kind of the risk to the platforms. So this is kind of the risk of having these type of platforms just in general, is that they just do what's best for their platform, not necessarily what's best for their content providers. You know, for Microsoft and Sony, there's obviously a ton of synergies, you know, um, and, and growing the platform is, is contingent on the support of publishers. But for Facebook, Apple, Google, and I would even put Nintendo on this list, uh, publishers are less strategic. They don't give a fuck, right, whether or not you're successful, only to the extent that it builds their platform. And so people move on. Facebook moved on to advertising. They didn't give a shit about the revenue stream from gaming. They wanted advertising was their ultimate goal. And so that's where they went. Um, so anyway, so the more I think about this, the more I think we may not really disagree. I may not disagree with Tim Sweeney, but I think where we differ is on the alternatives. I think, you know, he believes that open platforms are the future and the best case scenario. But I don't think we could have gotten here without Google, Apple, Sony, and Microsoft. I just don't think the industry would have been nearly as big without consolidation of platforms, you know? And there's and, and the publishers have benefited from that, right? More than they, I think they have lost overall. Uh, particularly companies like Epic, which have benefited not only from Fortnite with all these big platforms, but also their engine business with all the publishers that have succeeded uh, with you know these these big consolidated platforms. And I also do not think that allowing publishers to set up their own transaction systems is a good idea. I just don't. I think fragmenting the audience in that way, creating more. Uh, uh, sorry, more friction for the consumer. Just, it just results in less transactions, you know? Um, 
and I think ultimately keeping the same, the existing transaction system is probably the most efficient thing for publishers and consumers and, and the most frictionless experience. And then finally, I, the thing that still is bugging me, and I, I want to understand this, is why would he take money from Sony, right? If he's so against this 30%, like, actions speak louder than words. Like, you can get up there on Twitter all day long, but you don't take $250 million from Sony and rail against the machine the next day. It just doesn't make any sense. But anyway... I still think um, that what we have to do is have these publishers and platform holders, you know, peacefully coexist and douchebag moves like Apple did with this IDFA is definitely not helping the case. And if we see a few more of these actions, I may be out there with Tim with his epic quest to create an open ecosystem and down with the man and that sort of thing. So anyway, just a little bit of thoughts. We are going to do a panel on some of this stuff potentially a GamesCon, if we get that together. Um, so that will be really interesting to kind of debate uh, both platforms and, and, and you know, why tech has failed and why the big, big uh, studios have failed, that sort of thing in, in, in interactive. So we'll get more into it then. JK? Yeah, just to add on a little bit here from my perspective is that I felt like the interview was great and just getting a better sense of Tim's worldview where to your point, yeah, he's advocating for open platforms with competition at every point in the value chain. And he clearly wants Epic to compete at every one of those le levels. And it's, it's kind of like the famous Jeff Bezos quote, your margin is my opportunity. So he wants open protocols. He wants an open kind of platform. But the other thing that the, the sense that I got from him is that he's actually more focused on the ecosystem, right? So like, how do you have a healthy ecosystem, which is why I think that Epic does stuff like trying to support indie devs and things, things of that nature. I would say that the only part I disagreed with Tim on was when I asked him about the potential dangers of information leakage, right? That if you have platforms that the the owner of a monopolistic platform and if if you are if you are a service provider on that platform and you're sharing data confidential proprietary data with the platform you know tim sweeney's his approach to solving this is just by policy but what we've seen time and time and time again is that even with policies even with that so-called chinese wall that doesn't really work we've seen that with amazon as they took data from their from their sellers and use that to compete against them. And it even, to the extent that I actually know all of Fortnite's data, how do I know that as an external guy? You know, there's data leakage that happens even externally. So that's the only part I would disagree with them on, but I definitely thought that the interview was fantastic and just getting a better sense of exactly how he's thinking was, uh, in, in, in my opinion, very, very helpful. Yeah, along those lines, I just wanna make one more point and then we'll move on. <clears throat> so. I don't disagree with, with what Apple is doing, by the way, right? Even though I think it's total, it sucks for the publishers. Like removing the IDFA allows them to do a lot more. Like one of the rumors is they're basically thinking about going into healthcare, which is a huge opportunity for them. But you could not have unique identifiers if you're doing anything with healthcare because then it could tie back to the individual, right? And so, so they have to pull this thing out in order to like be competitive, do other things. I guess my point is that Apple doesn't give a fuck about gaming, right? They only, only as a means to an end of selling devices and potentially selling more services. So I just, you have to keep that, keep that in mind. And if I was at Apple, I'd be doing the same thing. It's not like I'm, you know, some benevolent person for publishers. I think Apple's doing the right thing for their business. Um, but that, that's what you always have to keep in mind. And that I think is where Tim is probably right. Is that that creates a lot of risk for other partners that are not, quote unquote strategic, you know, kind of like the Facebook gaming guys with Facebook. I just want to make that one point. I don't, yeah, moving on. What's, what do you got, AT, Adam? Sure. <laughs> um, I just wanted to talk about the last podcast because I think, Joe, you mentioned that um, I was crapping all over Ghost of Tsushima, which is a complete, <laughs> utter lie. I was just giving context. Um, it was about the, the 2.4 million sold in three days. Uh, yeah. I just hate articles that just kind of shout out a vanity metric and just don't give the context that's actually publicly available. Um, so, yeah, I, I was definitely not trying to drag down Tsushima's success because I'm playing the game and I actually really, really enjoy it. And I'm just very hurt that, Joe, you read my Slack chats by default with a very snarky voice in your head. I don't know why you get that. I want to know. I got one more correction. Sorry, I totally forgot about this. So I keep getting IMs from people that I won't mention uh, about you guys saying that Crucible cost like $500 million to make or something like that. What is the quote? 
Joseph, I think you've said it like six times, right? So there, there was that, that's, it's when it launched, which was that it would cost three hundred million to make, and yeah. then there was some people that basically tried to to like you know give an actual number based on the the dev head count, and I think it was more like one twenty. But we corrected that in the previous podcast. All right. Well, let's correct that for the record. They didn't know the way they spent $300 million. They spent probably around, you're right, 100, 120, maybe. They had like, I think they had 85 people on this stupid game. So, all right, moving on. I just keep getting this PM from the same mother trucker, who I like, by the way, but stop annoying me. All right, moving on. <laughs> um, other updates. The PS4 controllers will not work with PS5. Uh, that was big news this week because... That so is, money. By the way, that is <laughs> that is such bullshit. Okay, I I, I I was just waiting for one particular reason why these wouldn't work, right? Because, but the the, the tech is exactly no, the same. Zero and, zero. And no, and I was listening. It's like it was the worst. It's like, oh well, the the controllers won't work, but your 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 uh, every your other piece of wheels will work. Yeah. Everything else will work, dude. That's the same tech. Like, this yeah. is the same exact tech. It's, like, ridiculous. It's ridiculous. What a money grab that is, you know? It's bullshit. Oh. <laughs> Although those controllers look cool, so maybe I but, want but two it, of those. Same thing with IDFA, Eric. You understand why they're doing this. Sony I do. I do. It's but at diabolical. the same time, as a player, it yeah. sucks. <laughs> I mean, I know my son, he breaks controllers like it's going out of style, right? So I'm going to be paying $60 per, per controller. It's, oh, it's going to cost be 80 me a bucks fortune. To, 80 bucks this generation. You know it. All that Ugh. HD rumble. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they uh, they make money on the hardware now because they can't raise the prices on the software still. There we go. <laughs> there we go. That's right. Um, there's an article I think it was posted last week by McKinsey. Uh, I highly recommend reading. Um, it's on the Netflix of gaming and why specifically content subscriptions for video games will face an uphill battle. I think it repeats a lot of Eric's favorite talking points. But um, just really hits why Netflix or games model is an uphill battle. And what we've McK been kind of Mackenzie's a little late on this, right? Jesus I Christ. They probably listened to the podcast, you know, got heated up by some of your talking points and just did a little bit more research and put a little bit more thought into it than you, but it's good. <laughs> no, someone actually reached out for me from Facebook uh, randomly, like on, the, on, on LinkedIn, and was asking, why is it do you think that content uh, subscriptions for video games won't work? <laughs> Dude, listen to the podcast. Read an article about this stuff. See, that's what Facebook doesn't know anything about video games, man. Let's seriously. All right, continue. Sorry. Anyways, the article is great. Like to 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 summarize the 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 big points, right? Like first off, games are more like hobbies than TV movies. TV movies, you're you're more likely to sample. Um, so whereas games, you're much more likely to get stuck. Uh, for, for hundreds of hours with them, right? Games are hobbies. That's what we've always been building towards. Um, number two is that movies and shows do not have to compete with a free-to-play model, right? Um, why spend 15 bucks a month on a Game Pass when you have all these other options for free and that's actually where your friends are playing? Um, number three, it just seriously devalues your content, which I think is what we've talked about a lot, um, both from a cost and a revenue perspective. Um, in order to feed a service like this, which is my still my major concern with the Microsoft Game Pass, you just need to be developing Stranger Things level content on a regular beat to keep those subscriptions in. And uh, the, the reality is, is Microsoft is pushing in, what is it, like Grounded, Halo Infinite, all of these games and these subscriptions, each one of these games costing hundreds of millions of dollars to build, right? Like $100 million in dev costs, marketing, et cetera. Can they maintain that? And does the actual 15 bucks a month generate the same revenue that they could have if they actually just sold it for 60 bucks? Um, overall, it, the article argues that the games industry should stop looking at the Netflix model to be its savior against uh, free-to-play and its systemic issues as an industry, uh, but instead actually look more towards the YouTube model, which points pretty much at Roblox, which is UGC. But I think there's a lot more models than that. But either way, good article. Um, Fan Census, uh, head of analytics, Ryan Janes, uh, did a, uh, an article just recently about the impact of not having E3. Um, so he looked at media coverage, viewership of top titles, comparing 2019 and 2020. Um, and like the big example there is things like Assassin's Creed and Spider-Man, Miles Morales actually received very similar, if not better, press coverage within the first 72 hours and both surpassed 2019's levels in comparable titles. Um, so it, it, everything here looks like, um, even from a broader range of titles, that E3 did not, like not having E3 um, actually didn't really have that much impact. There's a little bit of bias because 2020, as we know, is a next-gen release, right? So things like 
Bug Snacks being compared to an indie game from 2019. Yeah, it was in the PS5 reveal, so of course it got a lot more coverage. But looking at trailer views, looking at viewership, looking at press coverage, everything looks like it's at least better, if not stable, with no more E3. So, Eric, you got your wish. E3 is dead. Uh, dude, that's not my wish. I don't know what you're got. <laughs> you, I, I know you. That's my your, prediction. You, I'm not my wish. But you, you uh, love your boondoggles, but no. But like, what I, I think I said this. I think I predicted this actually perfectly. Is that you're going to look at people are going to look at stats and they're going to say, "Holy shit, right? We don't need E3. We got all this coverage, you know, during COVID, right? Like, it's going to make it much, much tougher for people to convince the powers that be." at EA and Activision, et cetera, to be going to E3 when you can generate this much buzz from nothing, right? No more from, boondoggles. It's all over. Yeah, the boondoggles are gone, dude. Anyway, where am I going to get my intel? Um, <laughs> okay, folks, before we talk about the news, a quick commercial break to talk about Beta Hat. So stay tuned. I want to talk about consumer insights. Honestly, I've always had issue with consumer insights. I question the value and felt that CI was always somewhat disconnected from the real world. The big issue with CI firms is they don't hire people that know anything about video games and therefore don't have a fundamental understanding of what matters in this business. That's why I like Beta Hat. Beta Hat knows the business of video games and understands how to connect consumer insights to the real world. And Beta Hat helps you understand your customers, understand not only what they do, but why. They specialize in customer segmentations, brand tracking, messaging and positioning, pricing and SKU planning, and playtesting through qualitative and quantitative research. There are about 10 people in this industry that I rely upon to understand trends. And one of them is Stan Kwan, the CEO of Beta Hat. Beta Hat is the best CI team in the industry. Go to betahatmr.com for more information. That's betahatmr.com. Hey everybody, and we are now back to talk about Halo Infinite, to talk about EA having its best June quarter for sales in its 38 year history, and also Blizzard showing off the new Diablo Immortal gameplay, starting right now. Rolling right into news, we've got uh, first, could Halo Infinite be the last ever Halo title as 343 calls it a platform for the future? And this is by MCV Develop. So, MCV Develop is reporting that Halo Infinite is a shift in product strategy for the franchise. The publication reports that Chris Lee, the studio head for Halo Infinite, stated, quote, Halo Infinite is the start of our platform for the future. And the clear indication being that Halo Infinite marks the shift to a longer term live operated model. And MCV Develop even calls this the very last Halo game. And to further kind of confirm this, the Halo Twitter account also confirmed that Halo Infinite's multiplayer will be free to play and also added it will be 120 frames per second. My take on all of this is that we're at a very interesting moment in time for HD games. I mean, nobody's buying PC games at retail anymore, especially right now. And console now is doing what? It used to be 50% digital and it's even more now as we reported in the updates. And with this next console transition, I mean, who knows? It could get close to 100%. And so beyond physical to digital, we're also going to increasingly see a free-to-play and live-operated model for consoles as well. So I guess this means for, for guys like Adam, you, you've got more job security, you know, That's guys nice. like you bringing that <laughs> mobile free-to-play expertise to HD, but also suggests that there will be new winners and losers as with every environmental shift. And in my opinion, I just don't think a lot of people have really thought through the implications fully of these two trends. So thinking first about the shift to digital and second, the shift to free-to-play, if you trace route this through, it could mean a lot. Like in a free-to-play world, you just don't need to buy a bunch of new titles every year and every Christmas. And so the implications to companies in terms of product pipeline, in terms of jobs, things like that, all these things could be incredibly huge. And the speed at which these kinds of changes occur in the modern world can be very fast. And we've seen that, for example, with GameStop, for example. So my final comment here is I just have a question for the console experts. 120 FPS, does that make a huge difference or not? I mean, <laughs> like, I, I don't know. And, you know, why not? Like, what is that difference between 120 FPS versus, let's say, 4K 60 frames per second? And also, I personally, 
just one last comment for me that I kind of felt like 343 is out of touch with the modern audience. Sure, Fortnite, but for Halo, I would, from my opinion, as a former Halo fan, instead of going for more colorful, more vibrant palette like Fortnite, going for simpler models like Fortnite, if they would have gone more realistic, more gritty, more Call of Duty with sci-fi, I felt like that would resonate more. But anyway. Yeah, but then from a platform perspective, if you go with a simpler, vibrant art style, you can actually produce cosmetics at a much faster click and you can actually produce more more compelling cosmetics Good point. um so that could be the play like that could be the the uh, but i agree with you it just does not make for a very compelling as a halo fan right it feels like you're actually targeting a different audience but in terms of your question about why 120 frames per second um joe you're working on a shooter right <laughs> mobile shooter yeah okay it's mobile okay I'll what's go. the uh, yeah, yeah. Tell, yeah. Please tell me please. <laughs> i was like i was getting really really scared there for you um but if you play pc console shooters online right yeah. like competitively um i would highly recommend picking up a 144 hertz monitor when you play online pvp shooters and feeling the difference um and uh, i i think a point here as well uh, like valorant one of the main selling points for that game for competitive players was that they actually have 128 hertz server tick rate versus csgo's 64. Um, so this actually opens up a whole bunch of different strategies, right? Like from an onlooker's perspective, so let's call them casual shooter Joe, you might not really see that much of a difference, right? Um, but for competitive players, now all of a sudden they can be optimizing a lot more around peeking around corners just based on that tick rate. Um, and because of connection speeds getting better and better, it means that these things become much more viable. So 120 frames per second is less so much, I think, about the graphics fidelity. Like it, it will look amazing on a monitor, right? Because you'll actually get some of that motion blur, realistic motion blur between those frames. Um, but at the same time, it also is very good for competitive angles. It just seems a bit odd for the um, Halo style gameplay, which in my perspective is kind of like an old arena shooter from like Unreal Tournament. Uh, I'm not really sure how much value 128 or 120 frames per second really does for them. But anyways, um, so with the did, I, did I join the wrong podcast? Are we like nerding out about megahertz and frame rates and shit like that? What's not going megahertz. on? We're not techie here, dude. We're well, all about business. This is why you're so terrible at Call of Duty because you don't understand. <laughs> <this thing. laughs> um, anyways, okay. So note with uh, free to play. Um, yeah. So one thing like. There, there's this whole digital transition. Everything's going to free to play. It's great to know that I have some job security, but the reality is, is that premium games are not like falling off a cliff, right? Uh, it's not the same thing that happened on mobile. Um, so I just wouldn't conflate the two. Like games like Spider-Man, Fallen Order, God of War, Sekiro, Resident Evil remakes have all done really, really well in the age of Fortnite, Warzone, and Apex. And I think there's really one big reason for that is that Western free to play has only really figured out one model, which is PvP and Arena. So that's like League of Legends, Apex, Fortnite. Um, this all appeals to that segment of players, right? Like very competitive players, but that's really not the entire market, clearly, right? Like people who like Spider-Man do not necessarily like getting shot in the face by teenage boys. That's, that's the, the, the easy thing there. So in Asia, you can actually see much more cannibalization in their premium market because they actually have much more models, right? Like they have not just PVP games, they also have these massive MMO social spaces that appeal to a wider audience. And when you can get to that level where Western developers can build like a really serviceable um, MMO social spaces, yeah, then you'll get to a point where at Christmas, kids will be asking for um, that new weapon in that new game that they're playing rather than spider-man right and that's when you can get into cannibalization all right, all right wait, wait, wait before you continue do you mean are you saying that that is actually inevitable or are you saying that only if that happens like do you think uh, that's going to happen and we're, we're totally hosed like a traditional publishing uh well I, I think every single model that we've talked about on like in the hd console space right is susceptible to a free-to-play game coming in and eating up its audience, right? The problem has always been in the West that nobody's figured out the monetization aspect, right? right. Without drawing a, a massive amount of backlash. So I'm saying like inevitable, like will happen in the next five to 10 years. Um, I, I think certain genres are more susceptible than others, but that's my job. That's my job security. So I'm not really gonna talk, that, talk about that on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyways, back to Halo and their platform ambitions. 
Um, this is not likely going to be successful, but I think it's just kind of inevitable for them to kind of compete with Apex and Fortnite, et cetera. Um, it just makes me less likely right now to go get an Xbox because I'll just play this on PC. And also just because of this, it's less likely to get good, me to go buy Game Pass because it's now free to play. Um, so clearly, Halo looked at Warzone this year and said, no, why not us? Except the difference is that Halo gameplay is just not nearly as successful at retaining player bases like Call of Duty's gameplay. And also Warzone was launched six months after they launched, which actually avoided a lot of the cannibalization of their upfront sales. Um, and overall, I just don't think Microsoft has a great track record for launching some services. They've done great experiments here, but games like Killer Instinct, Sea of Thieves, Bleeding Edge, Gears 5, all had service ambitions, but fell short pretty quickly. Um, but like giving them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, the game's not out yet. Uh, I'll just give you kind of my, my framework about how I'm going to evaluate this. Audience retention, live content, and monetization. Those are the four. On the audience, of all the shooter fans, can actually pull enough, right? Like who are Halo fans now? Um, or have they moved on to Apex, Destiny, Fortnite, right? Who can, how many people can they retain as their core? On the retention side, right, like is old school Halo gameplay that compelling to come back to for years? Um, as I said, it's an arena shooter, so it's actually very different than Call of Duty. And I don't think I have public data to confirm or deny this, uh, but it'll be interesting to see. I just think from my perspective, they're going to have to end up adding a lot of other stuff to the game to compete against Call of Duty. So that's like RPG progression, um, as well as a lot of live content. And on the live content side, number three, um, are they actually going to come out with a solid live plan like Call of Duty had this year? which was competitive seasons, new characters, abilities, big map changes, limited time events. Um, this is the baseline to compete, right? And actually have a functioning live game. So they likely need to do more than this. And lastly on monetization, as we said, like, okay, maybe the art style will give them a little bit more leeway about how they invest in this, but are they actually willing to invest at the same length as something like a Destiny or something like a Valorant as they just show with their weapon skins? Um, or is it just going to be a bunch of crappy recolored Master Chiefs running around? And that's, if it's like that, then th there's no way that this is going to um, uh, succeed as a, as a service or, you know, go higher than what they could have made as a $60 game. You don't want a hot Anyways. pink Master Chief skin, Adam? I no. want that. <laughs> no. <laughs> sure, you can sell that for a solid buck, right? Like, that's, that's not going to happen. Uh, but anyways, those are my big four for how I'm going to evaluate it. I'm going to pass on judging it completely before I actually get to see more of the game. But um, the trailer didn't give me a lot of confidence. Eric? Well, I cannot hold a candle to that summary. I think uh, Adam obviously clearly has been thinking about this a lot because that's what he does for a living, right? Um, so, you know, it seems like they're going to push this ongoing software as a service, adding new features and content on a regular cadence, but can they actually replicate the Destiny model or Division, which I don't think Division's doing all that well, frankly. Um, and I, I actually don't even know, I don't have much as visibility with uh, Microsoft as I do some of the other publishers. I don't even know if they have the resources to even do this or the skill set, right, to build this because yeah, you're right, they're historical, uh, failures on on software as a service are pretty epic, right? Um, but the good news is, and I think you're touching upon this, is that there are models out there, right? We've seen what Apex is doing. We certainly have seen what Fortnite's been doing for the last few years. And now Call of Duty's finally got it right. So it's not like there's, there's a model does not exist. But I think what you're also touching on is that I don't know if Halo has that kind of audience anymore that it used to, right? I don't think, I think that audience has been fragmented to things like Destiny and Apex that I don't know if they're gonna stay with Halo for mo longer than the first few months. Um, and then finally, I will 100% agree with you. What we saw, the trailer and, and the way they positioned it even during their big conference does not give me any hope <laughs> or, or faith that they have all this stuff figured out, you know, um, that that people have been trying to figure out for years, uh, you know, Adam and, and others like him for the publishers trying to figure out how to build software as a service around non-sports games. Um, and and none of the, you know, Sony doesn't know how to do it. Nintendo certainly doesn't know how to do it. So the question is whether Microsoft has the right people to get it going. So we will see. Um, the next story is, EA had just the best June quarter in its 38-year history. So thank you, COVID, for an amazing bump in video game sales. Um, they basically, I'm not going to go into this too much, but 
most 90% of their revenue, I think was digital. 95% was digital during the quarter. Um, they also benefited from the fact that they launched nearly like three, 30 products on the Steam platform. So they're back on Steam, as we've spoken before, which is a huge opportunity for them to, to reach a broader audience. Apex continues to crush it. You know, the highest engagements in season one. Um, and then the real story, I think, or the majority of the upside was FIFA and Madden were like up insane amounts over the quarter uh, from, from prior years. Because usually these, these quarters are really light um, in general uh, for, for FIFA and Madden, ultimate team. But because stay at home, they got a bigger jump. Um, so in essence, I, the only reason I brought this thing up is because everyone's going to crush it this quarter, right? There's like no one that's failing, right? Take two just announced their quarter. It's been, it's, it was insane. Activision and Zynga are on deck this, 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 uh, today. Uh, they should crush it as well. This is going to just be a great, ga- great quarter for the gaming industry and all the gaming publishers. Oh, Sony. You know, we talked about that earlier. Sony just crushed it. Nintendo crushed it. Everybody's crushing it, right? So we'll see if these, the real question is whether these trends will continue. And uh, I'm not going to answer that right now, but I have my own opinions. Um, but back to EA. So they don't really have much this year. All they have is basically a UFC game, FIFA, Madden, NHL. They have no big shooter. They have no big action game. There is a rumor that they're going to do a... Um, uh, remaster of Mass Effect, but that has not been announced yet. So we'll see. Oh, they do have the Star Wars Squadrons game, which you know, at forty bucks, that's going to not do too bad. But, but anyway, um, next year is going to be much better for EA. They're going to come out with a Battlefield game and likely do some more, some other new games as well. And uh, and it, I think they are set up very, very well for this cycle, just in general. So, anyway, overall, great quarter for the gaming industry on the financial side um, for all the publishers and even and mobile as well. So that's it. Not much to add here, except, yeah, just that note about the overwhelming majority of EA's revenue from microtransactions is quite impressive. So of that 1.4 billion, 1.1 billion did come from microtransactions. So just kind of shows where the market is potentially uh, headed. And then in terms of like public company names, I mean, EA, I, I think we've talked a lot about on this podcast about how attractive EA is, but one other company to keep an eye out on is uh, C Limited. No, I mean, they're, they're up a lot, but uh, they're definitely an interesting public name to keep an eye out for. Uh, Kenny? Yeah, cool. Uh, it's, by the way, for those who don't know, C Limited is the uh, name, formal name for Garena, which is kind of the primary Southeast Asian um, game publisher in, in that region. Um, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see because uh, as sports gradually returns, how this may or may not affect EA's uh, sports-related titles. Um, uh, in the longer term in terms of revenue, just because a lot of VAs, you know, big, big breadwinners are, are actually related to effectively kind of like sports simulation type games. Um, so, so yeah, that, that'll be something to keep an eye on. Uh, let's move on to the last article. Um, so Blizzard um, shows off new Diablo Immortal gameplay. Uh, this was covered by Polygon, um, but um, essentially it was from a conference called China Joy. Um, and Diablo Immortal, now uh, built by NetEase and Blizzard, um, which was announced at BlizzCon 2018, showed off their gameplay. And according to the Activision Q4 call, it was set to release in mid-2020, so like maybe sometime soon. We'll see. Um, but essentially, the, the video showcased a lot of the gameplay, a lot of the character intros, um, and try to highlight basically bringing back some um, a lot of the character classes from Diablo 3, but also some of the bosses from Diablo 2, so most notably Ball from Diablo 2 expansion. Um, this game looks like a very Asian-influenced version of Diablo. Um, it does not look like a Blizzard game. It looks more like a NetEase game. Um, it's very complex D-pad controls for a you know top-down action RPG. It looks like it actually has the full range of abilities and real-time combat. Oof. So it looks like you're playing Diablo on a mobile phone. Um, and from the video, it looks like it's got an impressive amount of content plan. Like it doesn't look like it's just kind of got a whole bunch of procedurally generated dungeons. It also has like elevators and massive boss titles, et cetera. So it looks like it's going to be at the same style and cost and model as a lot of NetEase's other MMOs. Um, but yeah, as soon as I'm reading this sort of and watching these videos, I just keep questioning like whether they actually figured out their model at all. Right. Um, 
like the, the fact that they announced that China Joy, I think this is, they're really trying to make this as a play for China and China only, which I think is the right call. Um, because I really wouldn't even be translating this into English until you've gotten a critical mass in China and market this as Diablo for China, not Diablo Mobile for everyone, which is exactly what caused all the backlash before and can really, you know, prevent this game from becoming a success. Because I think like the, the real success criteria here is like, can they get enough of an audience in China due to the IP and whether they can actually match the monetization requirements that they need to be actually successful there? Because if Blizzard is playing puppeteer behind the curtains here, uh, as I think we're, we've all um, kind of seen as, as the, the years have gone by on this project, they will try to become this like Western mobile thing as well. And it's just going to push them to limit their monetization, limit their progression depth. And it will mean that it will neither appeal to China nor appeal or become successful in the West. Um, and I just don't think you can win both audience. So I would just say pick one and do it properly. And I would say Diablo for China seems like the direction they're going in. So do that well. Can yeah. look let me jump in here real quick. So, um, because you're that's this is what I want to talk about. The only thing I really want to talk about is that. So, I 100% agree with what you just said, right? They should have just licensed this thing to Netties and let them build it for China. Done, right? However, there's no way they're giving up their IP. You know, Blizzard won't give up their IP like that, right? They, they're not played like that, right? That's this is one of their biggest IPs. So, I don't even know if that was even. I mean, I'm sure it was discussed, but I doubt that was ever really seriously considered, right? And yeah. so now I think what is happening, exactly the same thing that you would think is happening is Blizzard employees are getting fully staffed on this game and fucking it up, right? Because they're trying to build it in their image. Oh. And that this game will not work in Asia if they start dumbing down monetization and you're no autoplay and you're like full control, all this stuff scares the bejesus out of me because I don't think this game's going to do well in the West. I've always said that. So anyway, it looks like they're having, they're really, really struggling with this game because this thing should have been in beta ages ago, right? Because it, it, I mean, two, I think it was a year and a half ago, like at, at the BlizzCon, they basically said that this thing was almost 90% done or some, some like quote from there, but that clearly they went back to the drawing board. And more recently, this thing should have been beta earlier this year. And and they probably missed some kind of like development gate or something because now it doesn't look like the beta is going to happen anytime soon. It's going to probably launch uh, like ne next year. So anyway, nothing seems to be going very well or nothing seems to be very easy at Blizzard these days. So, but, uh, but this, this seems like a disaster to me or could be a disaster. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting kind of like seeing the parallels between this project and the project that, um, that I was working on at Riot with Wild, <coughs> excuse me, Wild Rift, which is the League of Legends mobile game, um, and uh, you know this kind of I guess um, uh, anec anecdotal kind of like you know history is is very kind of similar in the sense that Tencent approached Riot, um, begging them to kind of like give them the IP to League of Legends so that they could re could reskin it onto some of their mobile games. Riot declined, and that's how basically King of Glory and um, you know, or AKA Honor of Kings, which is the number one mobile MOBO title in China kind of became a monster. Um, and then when Riot actually first started incubating their own project, you know, Wild Rift, um, there was a lot of, I guess, uh, um, misunderstanding or misjudgment on, you know, what Chinese players would like. So this game was, this project was built primarily for a Chinese audience first. And, um, but the designers for this game uh, and everybody on the team, primarily who was leading the, the decisions, were, were based in America. Um, and Americans don't really play mobile games the same way that Chinese players do. So, um, for example, there was a really, really big kind of like controversial discussion about should we dumb down League of Legends uh, on mobile to have it? We're not. I wouldn't say dumb down. That's not the, that's not a fair word. But basically, uh, consolidate the controls uh, from PC to be three spell instead of four spell uh, on mobile. Um, whereas in League of Legends, you have QWER. In mobile, we were thinking about like combining two spells into one or other types of like arrangements for each champion on a case-by-case -case basis to make it three spell. But when we actually did play tests with Chinese players, we found that um, Chinese players actually didn't mind at all the increased complexity, the extra buttons. Actually, more complex, the better, because they felt like it was um, a more authentic, quote unquote, to kind of like the League of Legends IP and the difficulty of the, of the game. 
and you know this is so so that's like one one case just one example that i can give that uh, of how like timeline was slowed down because of this kind of like inefficiency of what western developers think they know about chinese audiences and what they actually do um do know um art is another really kind of like a uh, big controversial topic because what we found was after doing some research was that um uh king of glory slash honor of king players you know 50 percent of them are basically female Compared to League of Legends, that's a very, very different um, breakdown. Um, I'd say League of Legends is much closer to, you know, what you would expect it to be, you know, probably 20% or so. And um, uh, when we surveyed female, and I think a big key to King of Glory's kind of success was um, the fact that they were able to attract this new female audience, bring them into their game. And uh, these these girls were playing and uh, the guys that you know, quote unquote, liked these girls or had crushes on these girls, they saw these girls playing this game on, that was very similar to League on mobile, but potentially struggling or, you know, not, or dying. And so um, uh, these girls would ask these guys to kind of help them, uh, help carry them, quote unquote. In Chinese, there's actually a phrase called dai meizu, which actually um, uh, literally translates to, you know, carrying a, um, carrying a, a girl, carrying, carrying a female. Um, and so this is a very common uh, common term that was used and was popularized by King of Glory. And so I think this this kind of like cultural phenomenon of basically uh, using honey, quote unquote, to attract the queen bees, and then the queen bees kind of attract like the worker hive bees, was the analogy that some of us used internally at Riot of how King of Glory found its success. And so we surveyed Ch of Chinese female players, you know, what do you think about League of Legends art styles? Um, and uh, the COG players, they said, you know, actually, we find some of the art to be overly sexualized or overly scary, you know, looking at, for example, things like Misfortune or Dr. Mundo or, you know, Ergot. Um, and so um, internally within Riot, we had to basically um, do a, a, an assessment of which champions actually uh, and which skins might actually resonate primarily uh, strong, more strongly for a Chinese audience. And so we purposely made decisions, for example, not to um, uh, have Twitch, for example, in the launch lineup uh, during the year of the rat because we were afraid that um, we might be subject to some competitive um, uh, blows from COG saying like, oh, look at this ugly rat in, in League of Legends. Um, so, um, and I think Spirit Blossom, the skin line, was something that uh, that was released uh, in League of Legends BC recently this past year. That, um, sorry, recently in the past month. And I think the reason why this skin line was released was primarily to have skins ready for the, the Wild Rift launch later this year, supposedly, or possibly early next. Um, that uh, and these and these skin lines, which are very very Asian Asian inspired or Asian themed, uh, they would resonate much more strongly with that kind of like Chinese audience. So um, so yeah. So I think uh, I've talked a little bit about this um, to to certain sex. So I'll just pause here and and open it up for comments to anybody who wants to add them. I'm just gonna say that it's like the weirdest, almost like creepiest thing of like <laughs> designing a game to lure people to carry women that is like that is so weird <laughs> does anyone else feel that weird well i don't think it was it was in originally intended to be that but it just ended up morphing to be like that just like naturally yeah, yeah. Right. well i mean if you're if you're analyzing <laughs> you analyze player behavior and you build around that i mean that's what you always do right yeah, yeah i guess I, I just have never done it to the level of like trying to lure people to carry women i don't know there's just such a weird reason to do it all right is that it are we done here i think we're done all right guys have a good week all right week. till next week bye sure.